morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words that I say, the thoughts and deliberations in all of our hearts, please you, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. It's the second day of Christmas. I trust you all have your orders in for two turtle doves. I particularly appreciated Emily's children's message, uh, which children's messages are always for all of us, aren't they? Uh, which uh, talked about giving, giving and receiving gifts. Because yesterday, I suspect all of us in this room participated in that time-honored Christian Christmas tradition, giving and receiving gifts. It occurs to me that you can put gifts in different categories. <clears throat> Uh, one category is gifts that are given with the intent, with the purpose, that they not last a long time. They're temporary gifts. Sometimes when we were kids, we would get toys that were designed to be functional for maybe a day. And then they would break and you'd throw them away. Uh, or maybe some of you of a more romantic bent uh, gave or received a bouquet of flowers, which by their very nature don't last very long. <laughs> uh, or, or maybe, uh, maybe you got candy. And I will tell you, uh, if you got a box of Ferraro Rocher and they're still around next July, you missed the intent of the giver. <laughs> You're supposed to be remembered only on our waistlines. <clears throat> there are other gifts that either by intent or by the meaning sometimes associated with the time that they are given have a much longer life. They become heirlooms, sentimental treasures, uh, my mother made for each of our daughters a handmade quilt that she gave to each of them for their weddings. And uh, just this past week, I was reminded of that as one of my daughters uh, showed me the quilt that she obviously treasured, that had been given to her by her mother a long time ago, by her grandmother, I should say, a long time ago. <clears throat> then there are gifts that grow. Anybody get a puppy for Christmas? Ah, yeah. Or maybe somebody wasn't quite as wild and crazy as to give you a puppy. They gave you one of those amaryllis that I've seen in the store, the bulbs that then erupt in this beautiful, large bouquet of flowers. <clears throat> or maybe <clears throat> you got a chia pet, a gift that grows. <clears throat> you can tell that you are one of those people who has everything for whom it's difficult to know what to get for a Christmas gift, if you got this Christmas a Chia Pet version of Richard Simmons, of Sweatin' with the Oldies. <clears throat> if you missed out on that one, but maybe got a gift card, Chia Richard is still available on Amazon and eBay and Walmart, <clears throat> along with a matching one of David Hasselhoff. Bookends, anyone? The two similar but different stories that were in the scripture readings for today are about gifts that grow. Both of them emphasize twice the growth of Samuel, the gift that Hannah so dearly sought, and the gift of Jesus that was kind of a, a gift that Mary didn't ask for. Now, it hadn't occurred to me that the boy Jesus in the temple was part of the Christmas story until earlier this month, one of my grandsons, Weston, played the role of Jesus as the boy in the temple as part of the church's Christmas pageant. And indeed, as I've looked into some of the uh, uh, commentators on this uh, passage in Luke, uh, it is the case 
that all of Luke 1 and 2 and arguably parts of Luke chapter 3 are part of the Christmas story. They emphasize Emmanuel, although that's Matthew's term, they emphasize Emmanuel, God with us, in all the different scenes of life. The two stories of Samuel and of Jesus as the boy in the temple have some remarkable parallels. So let's look at each of those stories in turn. First, Samuel. <clears throat> now, the short passage that we read this morning is the passage selected in the uh, lectionary, uh, but the story of Samuel is a long one. Samuel actually gets two whole books in the Bible named from First and Second Samuel. <clears throat> and Samuel is the last of the judges. And he serves far longer than any of the other judges. He serves his whole lifetime, arguably from his childhood to through the time when he's an old man, and he's the one who anoints the first king of Israel, King Saul. But Samuel's early start shows us how God works to talk with us, to present the uh, meaning of who he is in every or everyday ordinary scenes in life. <clears throat> uh, it repeatedly happens in the Christmas story that ordinary lives weave together with the grandest of theological revelations. Many of you will remember the term that C.S. Lewis used in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at the climax. And I won't tell you in case you haven't read it what the climax is, but it's a deeper magic. Something deeply meaningful comes into everyday life. It's the emperor's tax rules given at a distance that take Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, where the prophecies are fulfilled. Lowly shepherds on the hillside doing perhaps the dreariest part of their jobs find a savior. And family problems show the limits of human understanding and reveal to us more of how God's ways are up higher than our ways and his thoughts beyond our thoughts. In the Samuel story, it begins with a decent looking family. Things seem to be going okay at the beginning. We have introduced, introduced to us our Elkanah, a man who is a good man. He follows the rules of the law. He takes his whole family every year to Shiloh, where the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, is pitched, and where Eli serves as priest, along with his not-such-good sons, not-such-well-behaved sons. <clears throat> so Elkanah is a godly man. He has two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. And so now we're all kind of uh, thinking some interesting thoughts about the challenges that that might entail for family life. Uh -uh. But the text goes on to give us a story that may be even worse than we had imagined. Peninnah has children. Hannah cannot have children. That's bad enough for Hannah in a culture not too different from ours that highly values children. Hannah cannot have children. But to make matters worse, Peninnah, Elkanah's other wife, taunts her about not being able to have children. Finding her at her weakest spot and digging at that, and to get even worse than that, the text tells us that Peninnah is especially taunting of Hannah each year when they go to Shiloh. They're going to a time that should be the highlight of their religious beliefs. And that's taken by Peninnah as a time to taunt Hannah. I get children and you don't. Na, 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 boo, boo. But we need to have a bit of sympathy for Peninnah. Because the text tells us that Elkanah, typical male lack of sensitivity, 
tries to make up for Hannah's not having any children by assuring her of his love and by giving her twice as much of the sacrificial meats that the family shares as he gives to Peninnah and her children. How does that make Peninnah feel? To know, I have the children, but it seems that he loves Hannah better. Hannah recognizes that her husband loves her, but gives us an example of where the Beatles didn't get it quite right when they assured us that love is all you need. Hannah needed love, and she needed a baby. So she goes to the tabernacle at Shiloh, and she prays to God. And she prays in a way that I suspect many of us pray. She prayed silently. Her lips were moving. She is greatly distressed in spirit. She's downcast. She's depressed and sad. And as often happens with people who are depressed and sad in the congregation of the righteous, she's misunderstood. Sometimes people who are depressed are thought to be not sufficiently spiritual. Maybe they're rebellious. They're disobeying some law of God. And for Hannah, Eli's interpretation of her depressed behavior is that she's drunk. And he confronts her with this. Don't be drunk. Give up your wine, he says. And Hannah says, oh, you don't understand. Oh, my. It's because I'm so begging the Lord for a child that I'm like this. Don't think me a wicked woman, she says. I'm just begging for a child. And Eli sees the light for a moment. And he says, go in peace. May what you have asked of the Lord, may he grant it to you. And he does. God grants Hannah with a child. And after the child is weaned, she takes him as she promised to the temple and dedicates him to the Lord. Samuel spends the rest of his life in the tabernacle and as the judge of Israel. After she's done this, Hannah sings a song, a song that's remembered, recalled in some of its content in Mary's song that she sings uh, after she learns that her pregnancy is confirmed by her cousin Elizabeth, uh, the Magnificat. <clears throat> in that song we have, in both of those songs, we have testimony about the deeper magic of God's gifts. Things that happen that seem to be one way turn out to be quite the opposite. The rich are cast down. The poor are raised up. <clears throat> the hungry are filled. The full are sent empty away. After Hannah has left her child in the temple where he has been dedicated, his life has been uh, offered to the Lord, uh, she returns home along with her family. And then, as has been their practice, every year they return to Shiloh. And the text gives us this beautiful picture of family life. Hannah takes for him a small robe that she has made every year. One wonders how she knew what size it was. She didn't see Samuel from year to year. Perhaps one of Peninnah's sons served as the model. You can imagine the pins going in. Don't move. Hey, we're going to see how long this needs to be. <clears throat> and then God gives Hannah more than she asked, which he so often does. He gives Hannah three sons and two daughters. <clears throat> Samuel, left in the temple, grows. And he grows in less than ideal circumstances. He sees his mother and father once a year. His foster father, Eli, doesn't have credentials of being a great father. And his foster older brothers are not good examples. But Samuel 
grew. Turning to Jesus in the temple, there are remarkable parallels between that story and the story of Samuel. This idea of Jesus in the temple talking to the teachers of the law has captured the attention of artists through the centuries and in many cultures around the world. Can we have those up? There we go. Uh, Albrecht Dürer, you're familiar with a number of his paintings, I'm sure, was so taken by this uh, story that he painted two depictions of Jesus in the temple. 10 years apart. The first one was early in uh, Albert Durer's life in his 20s, then he's in his mid-30s when he does the second one. But it's not just North European artists like Durer that are familiar to many of us. This story has captured the attention of people around the world. Uh, George Sagay uh, in an abbey near Dakar, Senegal, has one of the panels of the altarpiece uh, showing Jesus before the teachers. It even goes beyond the Christian circles. Mir Kalal Khan uh, in 1760 in India, in a Muslim empire, the Mughal Empire, uh, depicts the story in the middle one here. And then uh, my favorite is the one on the right here. It's one done by the the Jesus Mafa Project in northern Cameroon in the 1970s. This was a community art project. What they did was first to dress up and act out stories in the Bible. Then they would photograph them as they were acting out the story and turn them into paintings. And this is one of them of the story. I like this so well because I think unique among all these art depictions I've looked at, they get a key part of the story. In most of the other pieces of art, the teachers look skeptical or mystified. In one, I'm not showing you this one, but uh, a 14th century painting by Duccio Boninsegna, (laughs) it's fun speaking Italian, Uh, it's titled Disputation with the Doctors, and all the doctors are frowning at the boy Jesus. But in this one from Northern Cameroon, the delight of the teachers shines through in their smiles, in their leaning forward. This strikes me as more likely because Luke tells us that the teachers, that everyone who hears Jesus is amazed or astonished. This is cool stuff happening in our very presence. A few more uh, pictures in the next slide uh, show the staying power of this story. These are all taken from one cathedral in northern France, Amiens Cathedral uh, in Picardy. Uh, Starts off with a quatrefoil stonework on the outside that was done 800 years ago, through a 16th century wood carving in the choir stalls, and to stained glass depiction done in the 1930s, the same time that these stained glass windows were prepared. All of these show the depth of interest in the story of Jesus in the temple. It tells us something about God. Let's see if we can figure something out. The family situation in the Jesus story is different. Unlike Hannah, Mary did not ask for a son. And though we're told that his coming was at the right time, the Christmas story shows us that the timing was not good for Mary and Joseph. But Mary still responded the same way Hannah did. At Elizabeth's confirmation of Mary's bearing a child, she sings 
And her song recalls the song of Hannah in the reversal of experience that happens when God acts. Luke is also careful to show us in the Christmas story that, Mary's, that Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, were very careful to do everything for Jesus that the law commanded. He was circumcised and named, as was commanded, on the eighth day. Then he's taken to the temple at 40 days for the presentation. And that presentation was very much like the ceremony we had a few minutes ago here. It's the dedication of the child to God. Uh, There's an intriguing little thing that's not said in Luke's story that connects that story to Samuel. Now, it's always dangerous to make too much about something that's not said, but something that you would expect Luke to comment on in showing that Mary and Joseph fulfilled everything in the law about Jesus is they should have redeemed him. Firstborn sons in Israel were automatically dedicated to the Lord. In the book of Numbers, the Lord makes a way to substitute. The Levites are given in place of the firstborn sons. But in Numbers, as you would expect by a book of that name, they count how many firstborn sons there were. And there were some extras. That is, there were more firstborn sons in Israel than there were Levites who were dedicated to God. And so God made a substitution. You can pay five shekels of silver for each firstborn son to redeem him. Fred Craddock argues that Luke not saying that the five shekel redemption price was paid shows that Jesus was, like Samuel, dedicated to the Lord all the days of his life. So they're very careful to do everything, and along with the care of doing everything, they continue their practice of going to to the temple in Jerusalem for the Passover every year. If you lived close enough, you had to go to Jerusalem for feasts three times a year, three parties, three Christmases. But if you were far away, you only had to go once. And so they were living in Nazareth, and once a year, they made the long journey by foot up the hill to Jerusalem. And when Jesus is 12 years old, they do the same thing. Now it's significant that Luke says Jesus was 12 years old at this time. He is on the cusp of adulthood. The term bar mitzvah is of later development in the 13th century, but the practice stems with rabbinical interpretations of scripture, which said that when a boy is 13 years old, he becomes a son of the commandments, or subject to the commandments. He is, as far as the law of God is concerned, an adult. So, when the child is 12 years old and playing ball breaks the neighbor's window, dad has to pay for it. When he's 13, the kid is responsible for it. That might be a principle we could use in some of our own uh, discussions with our family members. So, Jesus is 12 years old. I think that's part of the explanation. I'm going way beyond scripture here. But I think, because I've been in family all my life, I think that's part of what's going on here. Many of us might be tempted to be critical of Mary and Joseph, because the text says, They leave and head back to Nazareth, and they assume that Jesus is with them. They never checked. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, When I was a child, I was a middle child, third of four sons, and I got left behind at the shopping center once. 
And as I've talked to other middle children, I've discovered that that's a fairly common experience of middle children. (laughs) We're we're kind of accessories. They came back for me. I don't want you to worry that I'm still there waiting for them. But here you you have the company traveling. John Wesley points out something I hadn't seen anywhere else. Uh, But he says that the custom was for the men and the women to travel in separate groups as they're traveling from Jerusalem to Nazareth. And so you can imagine that Jesus being 12 years old made it unclear which group he should be traveling with. If he's still a child, he would be traveling with the women and the other children. If he's a man, and he's on the cusp of manhood now, he'd be traveling with the men and listening to their conversations. You can imagine the conversation between Joseph and Mary as they're walking the day's journey back to Jerusalem. I thought he was with you, (laughs) but I thought he was with you. Yeah, ordinary family circumstances. So here's the holy family separated. Mary and Joseph have walked a day away after spending seven days sleeping in somebody else's bed for the Passover feast. Walked a day away, now back to Jerusalem to try to find their son, and then a day in Jerusalem searching. So it's after three days they finally find him. And when they find him, he is questioning the teachers. He's listening to them. He's questioning them. And the text tells us that everyone who heard him was astonished at his questions and his answers. This questioning of Jesus is characteristic of his life. He's establishing a pattern when he asks questions of the teachers in the temple, a pattern that follows through all of his life. A number of authors have written about the questions that Jesus asked. One of them is Conrad Gempf, who has taught for us in our London programs for Houghton College. Another uh, scholar actually went through the Gospels and counted. I suppose we could all do that this afternoon, too. Counted how many questions people asked of Jesus. And this one scholar found 183 times that people asked Jesus a question. And how many times Jesus asked a question? 307 times. And then the scholar also notes that when Jesus is asked a question, there are three times in the Gospels where he gives a direct answer. (laughs) Often, his answers are themselves questions. Questions that reveal, make us confront deeper meaning. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Do you want to be well? And in the heartbreaking triple phrased questions to Peter after the resurrection, do you love me? Question after question after question. We aren't told any of the questions that Jesus asks the teachers or the answers that showed us his amazing understanding. The first question we read in this passage comes from his anxious parents. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And his reply is in the form of two questions. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And verse 51, I think resonates with everybody who's lived in a family. 
his parents didn't understand. Didn't understand what he was saying to them. This happens so often, doesn't it, in family life? Especially as you cross generations. The kids say, do, listen to, follow things that we just don't understand. And they say to us, especially in those developmental years we call adolescence, you just don't understand. You don't get it. There's comfort here for both parents and children in the fact that in the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph didn't understand Jesus. Maybe there's hope for us all. <clears throat> then Jesus left the temple and went with his parents down to Nazareth, down both geographically, it's at a lower elevation, and down in terms of leaving the high point of their year, the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. <clears throat> he goes down to Nazareth and he's obedient to them. Here we get to the possibility of application. And this passage has generated a number of different applications. Sometimes commentators just avoid trying to apply this passage at all. But one application that I heard in my childhood uh, was that this shows that since Jesus obeyed his parents, all children should obey their parents. And this is true. <laughs> uh, it's so important that it becomes one of the big 10, right? And the Apostle Paul reminds us that children should obey their parents because that's the first commandment with a promise. Yeah, things will go well with you and you'll live long on the earth. Uh, John Wesley draws a different application from it. He points to the growth of Jesus in wisdom and understanding. And since Jesus grew as perfect as he was, so there's room for each of us no matter how far along we are in our walk with God, to grow. John Calvin uh, observes that since Jesus was obedient to his parents, we ought all the more cheerfully bear the yoke that the Lord has been pleased to lay upon us. There are particular burdens that each of us may be called to bear, but there are other requirements that apply to all of us. And among them, uh, the admonitions from Paul to the Colossians, which make up the lectionary epistle reading for today. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossian believers, urging them to grow in grace, the words of 2 Peter, and he writes these words. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and the people. These words to the Colossian believers give us a pattern for following in his way. The sure knowledge that we are chosen, made holy, and dearly loved prepares us for growth in the way we treat each other. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience all relate to how we interact with other people the theology of who we are, 
chosen of God, holy and dearly loved, that theology works its way out in how we treat one another. Growth is seldom easy. And Paul reminds the Colossians that they can be a problem for each other. Hannah and Peninnah were a problem for each other. Both of them were a problem for Alcana. Jesus was a problem for Mary and Joseph. Imagine the disruption of an already long and tiring trip by an unplanned and worry-filled extra three days. Bearing with each other requires not just toleration, but active forgiveness. And Paul repeats the deep theological meaning of forgiveness that Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer that we said together a few minutes ago. Forgive us as the Lord has, forgive others as the Lord has forgiven us. May the gift of Emmanuel, God with us, grow in us as we grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.